John chapter 15. Last week I titled the message, because it's still on the subject of love, The Enemies of Christian Love. Enemies of Christian Love. An enemy is an antagonistic, something that's hostile or harmful. An enemy would try to prevent you from doing something or acquiring something. It's a good question to ask yourself. If I struggle with loving God the way I should, why is that? What have I allowed in my life that has become an adversary to God? We describe love as a commitment that you make. A surrender unto God that you make unto Him to serve Him on His terms according to this book. Therefore, we have to read this book. Jesus said, if a man love me, remember in John 14 and verse 21, He said, if a man loves me, he will keep my words. He that has my commandments and keepeth them, He said, he it is who loves me. So to love God is really an obedient, committed life. It's just like we said to love your wife if you're married. You took a vow in front of a church before God and these witnesses to commit yourself to her well-being, to make sure that her needs are met, to love her as your own body, the Bible said. You can't ignore that and expect God to bless your marriage. Women have confessed that they will submit to their husband and love them as they should and all the things that go with being a Christian woman, a Christian wife. And yet, through the years, so much of that goes aside. And instead of a flourishing, thriving, joyful marriage, you find two people who exist because there's a true lack of personal commitment to each other. It began that way. It didn't continue that way. Same is true with Christianity. Many people start out with such a, a passion for the Lord because they've been forgiven of their sins, they're sorrowful, and there's all kinds of emotions involved, and you, you can't keep them out of church for a month or two, and then something happens. Now, what we're after is what is the something that happens that sort of creeps into your life and becomes the enemy of this devotion you should have to God? Because we're supposed to be devoted to God. We're supposed to be pious, you can't be pious without being devoted. You can't be a devout person without focusing first, number one, and forever on the Lord. Your first true love. And you can't afford to let anything get between you. Jesus said in Luke 14, if, if you love your mother your father more than me, or even your own life more than me, you can't be my disciple. In Matthew 10, he said, you're not worthy of him. So it is a difficult life. Because you have to work at this. I mean, it is with difficulty that a righteous man enters into the kingdom, Peter wrote. And the Bible said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It, that means something. It may not mean much to us. We may not know what those words mean. But it did say that, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So back to where we were. To love God, to commit yourself to God to honor Him and to serve Him and to make Him first in all your life is the highest kind of love there is. Notice John 15, beginning in verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, 
that a man lay down his life for his job to make money, to be a good provider. That's the excuse. But let me read it again. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. He said, you are my friends if what? If you do whatsoever I command you. Now, we must teach these commandments. We must teach these things in a church. Why? Because that's what we do to show our love for God. Would you agree? If we don't know what he wants, then we define love as something else. It's what we feel good about. But once his word comes into our life and it it becomes a revelation to our hearts, and there it is, folks, it's what the Bible says. You not only get a chance to evaluate your life and your mind, but also whether or not you really love him. Whether or not you're using him to advance your job, your social status, or something else, or maybe get healed. Or whether you really are just devoted to him or not. We'll find out. Verse 16, he said, You have not chosen me. I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Now, I'm going to stop there and go to verse 17. These things I command you that you love one another. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, the subject of the enemies of love are all wrapped up in two things. I mean, everything that you could teach on comes from these two things. And number one is the world. The biggest enemy that we have this morning, yesterday morning, and tomorrow morning, the biggest enemy that we have personally, an enemy that does its very best and is very successful at turning us aside from true devotion to God to sharing that devotion in other directions. In seeking other things besides the kingdom is the world. It's the world. It's where we live. It's the system of men that we live under. It's the way we're educated. It's the way we're trained to think. It's the dreams the world paints for us that we are given to pursue. Go to college. Get an education. Find a good woman, a good man, have two perfect children, have two cars in the garage, one apiece, a good job, money in the bank, and then we'll live happily ever after because the, the world promotes two things, comfort and happiness. And you begin to think, if I can be comfortable and if I can be happy, then I will have found what life is all about. And that is secondly, self. It's all about me. You pursue your dreams for me. You learn so you can become a better you. It's all about what is the advantage I get from all of this. It's not serving anybody but yourself. Selfish, selfishness, self-righteous, self-serving. So many common words in our language describe the way most people are, not some, but most people and far too many Christians. Or self-serving. I mean, it's just about the way the world makes us. Self is, is subject to the world and its ways. And the world molds us into the image that it wants. That's why when a man gets saved, 
with all of our hang-ups and attitudes and ideas and yuckiness. Paul said, quit being fashioned. Remember Romans 12 too? Quit being fashioned according to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to change the way you're thinking about things. And this is what this word will cause you to do. You'll begin to see things in a different light. This is divine light. This is the way God wants you to see things. That doesn't mean once you see it and your eyes are open and you've had a revelation of it, it doesn't mean you'll obey it. Because if you love God, you'll walk by faith. The just shall live by faith. And faith is taking God at his word and acting like it's true. You live like this word is true. My God will supply your needs and I'm going to live like that's going to work. I'm going to act like he'll supply my needs because he said he would. And you're willing to do that because this is the kind of life God wants. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. There's no substitute for this. To love God is to do what he said. And a faith that works by love is the highest caliber of commitment any human being can make to God. There's nothing higher is to be willing to commit yourself to do what he said simply because he said it. He showed me that. This is what I'm going to do. I will let nothing else interfere with this. That's a devoted person, a consecrated person. And I think a lot of folks say, I don't know very many people that are there yet. Well, isn't that a shame? Because all of our lives, we've let something keep us from being like that. Now, the one I mentioned last week, first of all, is covetousness, money. The enemy of God's love is the world and self. And boy, if there's one thing the world plays on man's mind about, it's right here. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which some have coveted after. They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let me say this because I'll say it again. I'll say it several times today. It is not a sin to be rich. You are not cursed if you're rich. Otherwise, Solomon didn't make it, and King David, he surely didn't make it. Hezekiah never made it. Jehoshaphat never made it, nor did a bunch of other people in the Bible. God's people, when it came time to build a temple, they asked the people, bring to us gifts, bring to us sacrificial gifts, bring us a donation, give something. This is not required. This is a free will offering. Bring it. And the people brought stuff. They kept bringing stuff. They finally had to say, tell the people to quit bringing it. We've got piles of stuff, gold and silver and bronze and brass to build a temple with. The people were willing to give. The opposite of willing to give is a desire to get, to hoard, and to have. Because out of that, a lot of people think that being well-to-do and rich translates into security and M-I-S, made in the shade. You're pretty set for the rest of your life if you've got all of these things. And yet some of the most miserable people in the world 
are the rich people. How many really wealthy men commit suicide? Or women? How many really well-to-do people are the most irritable, broken-down, ugly-acting people you've ever seen? But you can be poor and do that. Rich doesn't make you that way any more than poor makes you that way. It's not wrong to be rich. But there is a certain danger that goes with being rich, especially with regard to how you love God once you become wealthy. Remember Jesus said this once? He said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom? He didn't say they could not. He said, how hardly? Because something happens when the wealth of this world begins to flow into people. And it can even Jesus said, he said that he would open the windows of heaven and pour out a little blessing on you. No, he talked about the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you that would, well, Luke six thirty eight. he said, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and flowing over. That's what he said. Remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He bore the curse of the law, so that you, through his poverty, might be rich. I mean, it's in there. The Bible has both sides here. But we're talking here about specifically how the covetous spirit or attitude, which the world brings into some people's lives, how that takes them away from the love of God. But I'm going to say it again. You don't have to be rich to turn away from God. You can be as poor as the mouse that lives in the church building where there's no cheese and be irritable and like that. But he specifically mentions the rich. So we're going to deal with that today because you are subject in this room, if you walk with God, to inherit his wealth, to be blessed. Would that be all right with you? What if you had more than enough this morning? What if you were wealthy? What if every one of you were rich? Maybe some of you wouldn't be here, but you are here. Thank God. But the word of God promises to his people more than just enough. It promises your needs. My God shall supply your needs according to his riches and glory. Well, that's only your needs. Yes. And he will also give you the desires of your heart. So while there's a lot in the Bible that goes both ways, again, specifically here, we are warned, Paul writes to Timothy about obviously something where Timothy was about well-to-do people that he needed to deal with. He said, they that will be rich, those that are trying so hard to beat the system and become wealthy, they're going to fall into all kinds of temptations and snares, all kinds of hurtful lust things that are going to distract you spiritually. And you're going to learn to make excuses as to why you're distracted because after all, and then you'll be going to justify all the reasons why you're no longer serving the Lord like you once did because now you've got these other things you're serving. It's becoming a little God in your life, your money, your career, your family, your pursuits, your dreams. God said he would take care of all these things, but a lot of people don't believe that. They believe that there, if anything good is ever going to happen to me, I'm going to have to go out there and get it. And that's not true, but a lot of people think it's true. So they seek wealth. They desire to be rich. 
And again, its effect, he said, you fall into all kinds of temptations. You get snared. It's amazing how many times when you're pursuing the wealth of this world, you don't have time to do anything you used to do. Somebody else and something else demands your time. And yes, you should have gone to church last night, but I had to do. And all these things just subtly come into your life. But you're making money. You're doing good financially. He said, you fall into many foolish and hurtful pleasures and lusts. Things, he said, which will destroy. Now, that's a warning to us, not because there's a lot of rich people in this room, but it's a warning to us in case our pursuits in this life, especially you young folks, in case your dream is to get all of it that you can, however you have to get it, at whatever cost. And let me tell you something, it really isn't worth it to get it that way. Some of the happiest, most contented, and peaceful people I've ever seen were people who had little of nothing. And what little bit they did have, they certainly enjoyed it, and they would share it with you if you wanted it. Because they had no affection for it. They enjoyed richly the things that God gave them. They don't need much. It didn't take much. They had peace with their family, their children. They had peace with each other. They don't argue. They don't fight. They're not in a frenzy. They're not stressed out all the time. They're not huffing and puffing physically. They're just at peace because they have learned to let God bring into your life the things he said he would bring. All I have to do is just honor him, obey him, and love him. It's amazing what money does to people. Of the kind of things that people will do for money. You can hire people to assassinate people they don't even know. You can give a certain amount of money to somebody to go kill somebody. They don't have any problem. They don't know who they are. You have to point, like Judas and Jesus, you have to kiss the one that's the bad guy that you want to crucify because they don't know who Jesus was. So they hired one of his followers and pointed him out. Judas did that for 30 pieces of silver. And it didn't do him very much good in the end of his life when he threw it away. Look at the life that a prostitute lives. Yeah, she makes a lot of money, somebody said. Yes, she surely does. And she becomes defiled and becomes unclean. And who knows what kind of diseases she hopes she doesn't get or some sicko doesn't get involved and take her life. And you read this stuff all the time in the paper. And I'll guarantee you that at the end of some of these people's lives that live like that, it really wasn't worth it because after all the money they make, you look at them when they're 50 years old, they don't have anything. They've been made a fool of. They have never really been loved because they've never loved. They never loved who they were with, and the person they were with didn't love them. There's no commitment. It was all in the realm of self. And what goes into self goes away from self. Into their life, they're just broken down, ugly, bad attitude people. Some of them are in heaven because they got saved. And there's hope for them too. There's people who will lie, mislead you to make money. They'll sell you something they know is not what they're telling you that it is because it's all about money. I will violate two of God's commandments so I can put an extra dollar in my pocket or an extra $100 in my pocket. 
And all the time I'm living this kind of a life, there's a record that God is keeping in heaven and nothing is being left out. And one day I've got to give an account for all of this, but it'll be too late to do anything about it. Making bad choices in this life. And the reason I'm making bad choices is because of money. Because of what I think that money can give to me or what I can get from it. And how low-level, low-grade a life does a drug dealer live? For the drugs that he sells to people not only ruins their lives, but it ruins lives about them. And it ruins lives of innocent people whose homes are broken into and they're robbed and stolen from in order to buy drugs. A drug dealer has no love for anybody on this planet except himself. He doesn't care what you have to do to buy his drugs, go steal it, borrow it, whatever you got to do, but give me my money. And the end of his trail are ruined lives, laying in gutters, or on slabs in hospitals for students to work on because they couldn't afford to be buried, had no family. What a wasted existence, all because of money. Money. There's the workaholic, the well-to-do man who works 20 hours a day. He labors. He's up in the morning early and he's after it all day long. He's really into it. He's not trying. He's into this. Loves it. He excludes his family. He doesn't have time to be a daddy. Take them to the store here. Here's 20 bucks to go. You have a good time. He's 16. Buy him a car. You know, I don't have time because he's making money. He's irritable when he comes home. He doesn't spend time with his family. He goes to his computer and he goes to bed. He doesn't want to be interfered with because he's a workaholic. And his kids grow up without a daddy. Oh, they've got a daddy, but it's the daddy who's denying the faith because he's not providing for the needs of his children. All little boys and girls need a daddy, especially the little girls. They need a daddy. Because if daddy ain't going to love them, they're going to be some rasty little boy out there who's going to try to love on them. And one day if she's old enough, she'll say, where were you? He was busy. I was making money so he could go to college because that's where all the corruption started, of course, with her. Didn't have to, but it often does. Then some people just become vile for money. Movie stars will get in any kind of a scene. They'll repeat any kind of line, any kind of vulgar saying or take their clothes off for money. There's no worth. There's no value put on me as a human being. It's just, what can I do with this lovely body and face and talent of mine to make money? And then you find some of these rich movie stars who hung themselves, shot themselves, overdosed on drugs because they can't handle the pressure anymore. Money. Covetousness. And they got it. They had hordes of it. They brought it in by the bunches, and it did them absolutely no good whatsoever. Being rich is not the goal in this life. But rich does involve itself in being rich towards God, laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven, so that as you begin to live the Christian life of loving and serving and, and being what God wants you to do and what accumulates in heaven to your account are all these things that God will honor in your life. And being, like I said, rich toward God, having favor with God, 
having lack of nothing in this life, and if nothing else, being content. You're living in a world that's the opposite of contentment. Drug companies are making fortunes on people's stress. People are just tore up all the time. The Bible describes them as unkind and unloving and hateful and difficult and self-centered and self-serving and angry all the time and blowing the horn and can't wait and impatient. It's the day we're in. Road rage because somebody slowed down when they shouldn't have slowed down. I'm going to miss being home by 46 seconds. Wow. Angry. Probably behind all of this is a pursuit of money. Me. Mine. Some people like to get it easily. They like to sue to get it. They look for opportunities to sue people. Litigation in courts. For money. They'll lie in court. They'll lie through their teeth to get money and not realize that in heaven, you're not only cutting your life short, but you're giving up eternity. A bad choice. Really bad choice. Now go to James chapter 2. Here's a couple of things the Bible says about the rich. Now they obviously had a problem where James was with rich people. They might have been in the church. They might not have been in the church. But here's something he said in James about the rich. In verse 5 and 6. And let me begin, preface it with this. Not all rich people are corrupt. Say amen. amen. There are lots of very generous, loving, and kind. I met a man once, a very well-to-do man, who's one of the most generous men I ever saw. I mean, this guy, all he needed was some direction from the Lord, and he would give. In my early days of ministry, I met, was involved with, and running around with a lot of really well-to-do people in the full gospel business. A lot of them were millionaires. But I met one. I met one who was the real deal. He was very generous. He had a lot, didn't complain about it, didn't talk about work all the time, rather talk about Jesus, and he was a giver. But he was different. Not a lot of people like that. When you make a lot of money, you're sure everybody else is trying to get it, and you become suspicious, and you become ingrained, and you don't want to let go of it. And then you get corrupted by it. You fall into temptations and every kind of a hurtful snare, the Bible said. Verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? How many of you know that when God chose Israel out of Egypt, they were not a rich nation? They were a bunch of slaves. Now, he brought them out with silver and gold because they asked their Egyptian landlords for all their silver and gold, and they gave it to them because God is able to oversee people. And so they came out with a whole lot. But when he chose them, they were poor. And he brought them to become a mighty nation. Now, he does not say, and I want to repeat it for the third time, in verse 5, when it says God chose the poor, it does not mean if you have some money, there's no hope. That's not what he's saying. 
God is not a respecter of persons, whether you're rich or poor, black or white. It doesn't matter. You're a living soul, and God has a desire for it, and when he wants it, he goes and gets it. Now, if you're corrupted in some way, it's part of the cleansing process, the chastening process God runs us through to correct us so he doesn't have to judge us in the end. But he said about the rich people, he said, you see a man coming in, like in verse 2, if they're coming to your assembly, a man with goodly apparel, and they're coming also a poor man in vile raiment. Now, I don't know what that is unless it's his pants down too low <laughs> and he hadn't had a bath in a while. But he said, vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the uh, gay clothing. And you say unto him, sit thou here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves and not become judges of evil thoughts? And he said, verse 5, hearken, brethren, listen to me, brothers. He said, is it not the rich people who oppress you? See what money does, what he's talking about here, what your perception of money does. You got a poor man coming in. What, he can't do nothing for you. He's got no money. You have no advantage with him. He's not going to make you better off. So, you know, well, you're all right. Now, a rich man comes in, and what happens to a corrupt mind? Oh, this guy's got some loot. This guy's got some Get out of his seat. Mr. Man in uh, nice apparel, come down here and have a seat. Money has already corrupted me. I don't have it. He doesn't have it. But the idea of it. And selfish gain. How corrupt is that? If I treat this well-to-do guy pretty good, if I cater to him, if I buddy up to him, maybe he'll give a lot and maybe I'll get a little something myself. Is that not corrupt? The Christian way is, hello, brother. Where can I sit? Well, there's seats here or there. Well, I want to sit down front. Well, there's only one. And these two brothers here will let you sit between them. Well, I want these people to leave. I want to sit in the front row. No. They were here first. First come, first serve. They got here at 5 o'clock this morning, so they get a front row seat. <laughs> so he said, it's the people that oppress you. Look in chapter 5. They're the ones that, well, they keep you from doing well. Chapter 5 and verse 4. Here's one little example of with some well-to-do people and the people they hired to work for them, which they don't pay. Verse 4, Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You're not paying them their just dues. You're not giving them what you said you would give them to work for you. Now they work for you and you're not paying. Do rich people ever do that? Ask some of these folks who have done jobs for really rich people. Not all of the rich are like that, but there are some. I know of a case where a guy worked pretty hard and did some things for these well-to-do people, gave them the bill. A lot of work here. man had a family, had needs, and worked hard and gave them the bill. And they looked at the bill and said, that's too much. We're not paying that. Like, you do whatever we want you to do, and then we'll determine how much you ought to get for doing it. And he wouldn't do that. So there became really a conflict there. I don't know if it ever got settled. 
But can you imagine if I hired somebody to come to my house? I said, I want you to do this, that, thus, and so. And at the end of the day, he did this, that, thus, and so. And he gave me a bill. And I said, I'm not paying that. Now, if he gave me a bill that was extravagant, I might say, don't you think this is a little strong? When Becca was down in Cozumel and had that wreck, don't ever wreck in Mexico. <laughs> they wouldn't let her out of the country. They said she had a brain, you know, and she's, well, she was she about to die, really. She's critical and about to die. And they called a place in Houston, a flying intensive care airplane. Goes and gets really bad cases in other countries. They could go down and get her. And I was on my porch. I remember where I was. I said, well, how much is all of this? I said, we can do it for 19000 Of course, I'm thinking, you really don't have any clue who you're talking to, do you? <laughs> I don't mean the president or anybody important. And I said, well, you know, that's a little strong. So well, that's what it costs. I said, well, listen, I'll give a little more thought to this, and I'll see what happens. If I do, I've got your number. I did. I give me some thought. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> I give a little more thought. That's enough. I thought that was strong, but I didn't ask them to do it. If I had asked them to do it and they gave me the bill, what am I going to tell them? You asked them to. If I put somebody to work and he dug a ditch and did this or that and gave me a bill for $1,000, I'd say, brother, uh, maybe we need to talk about this a little bit. That seemed just a little strong. If he says, well, that's how much it is, I'd probably pay him once. Well, I didn't have to hire him the first time. I really don't have to hire him the second time. First time, shame on you. Second time, be shame on me. But there are people who don't want to pay their bills. They got it to pay. They just don't want to do it. Listen to this verse I'll read to you in Jeremiah 22, verse 13. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work. That's a trait in some cases of people who are well-to-do, but who want to keep their money, and they don't want to pay those that work for them. Some of you that are old enough will remember a Tennessee Ernie Ford song. I load 16 tons. Now, you all don't know that. 16 tons of number nine coal. And then part of that song, he said, I load 16 tons of number nine coal. He said, what do I get? He said, another day older and deeper in debt. He said, St. Peter, don't call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I am owned by the store. I am a servant to these people who really bear down on me. They want money, just like the credit card. You ever been behind on a credit card or gotten in a hole with a credit card and had that call once a week? I never have. I've heard about it. Or the bank downtown that you're behind on a payment and that bank calls you once a week and talks real ugly. I knew a case of a brother who went through that. They were rude. He used to say, I'll never deal with that bank. All the people have changed now, so that's probably changed also. But the people that have it lean hard on the ones that don't and really don't care how you feel about it. 
You came to us, we gave you the money, and now we expect you to do whatever we want you to do. The borrower really is servant to the lender, and the rich really do have dominion over the poor. And it is a harsh life sometimes whenever you get behind and you have to deal with some things. Like, listen at this. In Proverbs 18:22, the poor useth entreaties at his humble request. The poor has a humble way of approaching you about his needs, but the rich answereth roughly. How many times do employers look down on employees as being inferior? Maybe they're Hispanic or maybe they're aliens. Or maybe they're just poor people and you talk rough. Yeah, go to there. Oh, get over. Get out of the way. And you talk rough to them. You wouldn't talk to your friends like that. I think it's this. I think that you have determined that because you have something they don't have, you're superior in some way to them. But in the eyes of God, nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody. But when you think you are, you often think you are because you have what he's never going to have. And therefore, he ought to respect you because you have. And you treat people ugly. Paul spoke about you employers. Treat your employees kindly. You employees. You work for your employers to help them, to do them a good job. Make them glad they've got you working for them. That you're making money for them. You're not trying to cut corners and cheat them and rob them. You're trying to do them right. Money corrupts us in so many ways. This idea of, I want mine, but I don't want to work for mine. Money. Money just corrupts a lot of people in a whole lot of ways. Plus, I think... A lot of people with money really are suspicious. You're trying to get it. Everybody tries to use them, and they do. Rich man comes to church. Everybody expects them to pay all the bills and buy all this and do everything. They get leery of that. They become a little grouchy, a little withdrawn, because we esteem money more than just trusting in the Lord. Now, I want you to turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13 and we'll get started. Because Jesus here, in the red letter of my Bible, Jesus here tells us two things that happen to us in this life that make us unfruitful. Now, I mentioned fruit while I go in John 15. An unfruitful man standing before God has nothing. Nothing. Unfruitful. Nothing was born in your life. Well, let me say this because I don't like to get off the subject like this. Christ in you is a seed. The beginning. The seed is designed by God within you to grow. Everything that would hinder its growth, you crucify it, get it out of the way so it can grow. So that the seed in you reproduces itself. So that it's no longer I we live as Christ who lives in me, and the fruit that is born is love and joy. Everything that characterizes God replaces all the things that characterize fallen man. And these things begin to bloom and blossom in your life. And they see Christ instead of the old you. Your life is changed. You're a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. So that's fruit. This is the change. You can see the change by the fruit of the life or the fruit of the lips and so forth. Now, in chapter 13, verse 22, this sower and the seed, 
He also that receiveth seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. And now notice, and the cares of this world, we said in the beginning, that's our problem. The world, its systems, its ways, the worries and the concerns of it, the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches. Does your Bible say that? Now you combine your concern and your care for the world and the deceitfulness, whatever that means, of riches, and what do they combine together do? The combination of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches do what? <laughs> the cares of this world, the things that get our time and attention that make us angry, frustrated, stressed, irritable, and lazy... Our concerns about the world and me and my part in it, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Something that is, listen, something that is available to all of us. I'm not a poor man standing here. I'm not broke. I have to explain that. Maybe my parents and her parents left us enough money that I can now say we're not broke. We're not rich in the sense of, well... But we're not broke. We just enjoy what we got. And when it's gone, it's gone. Easy come, easy go. I'm enjoying it. Don't have near as much as I have, but if it, <laughs> if it goes, it all goes, but I'll have a good time. I never understand why people be 80, 90 years old and saving money. What for? My dad and my mother put all their money in the bank all their life, and they never enjoyed it. But anyway, anyway, let me get back to stomping again. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, what do they combine together do? Choke the word. They clamp shut. In other words, the one single thing. That Jesus said, if a man loves me, he will keep this word. The one thing that Jesus said to Martha that is necessary. One thing, only one thing in life is necessary, Jesus said. And that's hearing this word. Because if you don't have this, you can't do anything right. you got to go with this. And if you have the word, then you do it. Now, when this becomes clouded, you can't do anything right. You can do a lot of things right that people give you a plaque for. They have a memorial service for you. Tell you how great you were. But if you don't live with this book, you got nothing. Now, this word, if the devil can devise a way in your life to choke the word, to shut down its effect in your life, to deter you away from it in some way. You're all right. You go to church. Hey, after all, nobody's perfect. Just deter you away from it and choke it down. How do you choke it? How do you choke the word? The cares of this world. And what's the other way you choke it? What do they do? They choke the word. So that you're still a Christian. You still go to church. You're still an involved member. It's just that the Word no longer has that first 
place of love in your life. It's no longer the absolute word, the I must do this word. We ought to have an ought to club in the church, an ought to club. We ought to do this and we ought to do that. But after all, we've learned to say nobody's perfect because the world gives you these excuses. The world never wants to be condemned about any sin. The world's doing its very best to eliminate sin. Get the Ten Commandments out of any place where there's a government official. Because it's all about what is wrong. The Ten Commandments doesn't tell you how to get delivered from sin. It just describes what's not right. And everybody that looks at that has that pain of guilt. Have you ever lied? You ever committed adultery? You ever thought about it? You ever cheated somebody? You ever coveted what somebody had? You ever disobeyed your parents? Well, no wonder people want to read that. Everybody's got something to be guilty about. Sin. So we make all of these excuses why, well, nobody's perfect. I mean, you can't just live what the Bible says. Come on. After all, God knows we're in this fleshly body and we can't. And we make all of those kind of worldly excuses. And our life is a shambles. We think we're going to heaven and we're not. We're not. I say we editorially. Now, I am. By the grace of God, I am. But riches are deceitful. Riches are deceitful. The deceitfulness of riches. In what way are riches deceitful? Well, I've been talking about it. To have money makes you think you're something you really aren't. Money tells you you can have things now. You can go places now. Money tells you that you're a cut above now. But you don't have to drive that old thing or wear that old stuff anymore because you are, you're pretty good now. Well, and that's true. You really don't have to drive something. You just drive or wear what you, you really can. But you begin to look at other people as being less than you are. You begin to cut corners. You begin to be aware of the fact that people want something from you that you feel like they're trying to get it, trying to take advantage of you. Riches are deceitful. They make you feel secure. Well, if this or that happens, then I'll just go to my bank account. That ain't no problem. We could have one of them. We could go there. I could buy that. I told one of my daughters the other day, you know, when Bonnie and I hit the 50-year mark, don't be having no big gift thing. Because I said, what do you think we need? She said, nothing. I said, well, absolutely. Don't need a thing. I don't mean that wrong. If you had a big fancy this or that, oh, sure. But you don't need it. really don't want it. Don't need to spend any money on stuff like that. Life is simple even though you got what you never had before. It really hasn't changed you. You're a little more comfortable than you used to be, but that's okay. That's okay. There's not a soul in this room. There's not a young person in this room that cannot be blessed abundantly in this life 
if you will live the way God wants you to live and quit trying to do the way the world does. I could tell you this morning that there is one thing I could, there's probably more than one, but one thing specifically that if you would do, God would bless your life and that's give. And I'm not talking about giving me money. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about have a giving spirit, generous spirit. Learn to give. So many people try to get and hoard it in. They just don't want to give. 80% of all the money given in the church is given by, I think, 5% of the people. Maybe the 5% of the people are the ones that's got the most. So that's okay because they should give. But money, money corrupts you. You get deceitful with it. And you remember the man who built his barns in Luke 12, the ground of a rich man brought forth plentifully and... He one day looked at what he had and he said, my, my, I have done well. And it's okay to do well. It's not wrong to do well. It just depends on the attitude towards God that you have about it. Is it yours or is it his? Are you managing it for him or are you entirely yours and he doesn't have a right to all of it? It depends. He said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build me some bigger barns. Then I'm going to look back at my barns and say, soul, eat, drink, and be merry, and take thine ease. You have arrived, my man. You have arrived. You know what the Lord said to him? The Lord said to him, he said, thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Who's going to get all your little stuff now? Your kids are going to kill each other to try to get it all. Probably not. Turn to Hebrews 13 for just a moment. The deceitfulness of riches. You know the word deceitful is synonymous with snare. Snares you, bait. I knew a man once that got an inheritance and slowly declined spiritually declined until he just drifted away. Do you think God wants that to happen? Obviously not. Now, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest here in Shelbyville, Kentucky, or out there in the electronic world, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you, young or old, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through what? That's what sin does, and that's how deceitfulness works. You become hard, hardened. You're not pliable anymore. You become difficult. You can become rude or rough in your speech. Disrespectful to people you figure are lower than you are because you got money. Or because you think you are. It chokes the word, folks. And when it chokes the word, it chokes the fruit. And when you choke the fruit, in John 15, it says a man, a tree that has no fruit, will be broken off and thrown into the fire. I would have to say, and this is not the message today, but I'd have to say, God, I understand if you want us to be fruitful, we've got to give way to Jesus Christ.
because he's the only fruit bearer there is. The only fruit that can ever be born that is acceptable to God is the fruit that he brings forth. But if he's suppressed in me, if I don't give way to him, if he doesn't increase and I don't decrease, and I'm always trying to do my own thing, then I stand before God at the end of a vain life, empty. No fruit. And what does he say to me? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Faithful to whom? Not to Jesus. I didn't want to walk his way. I didn't love him. I loved all of his promises. I would love having all the things that the Bible promises, but I don't love him. I'm not going to give him my life and be a laughing stock where I work because I'm living the Christian life and people mocking me and making fun of me. I don't love him that much. Just like Peter, he denied knowing the Lord too. God can still use you, of course, and he can still change you, but it's not easy. Now, as we come to a close this morning, I want you to go back to 1 Timothy 6, where we started. Because not only is deceitfulness sin, but at the same time, deceitfulness is unloving. It robs you of the expression of love that you should have for God. You're deceitful. You're not pure, and you're not without guile. Now, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. Charge them that are rich. Would that be you? You want to confess it? Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not High-minded. Now, high-minded is arrogant or proud or puffed up and heady and, you know, that type of look-at-me stuff. That they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly a lot of things to enjoy. It says all things, doesn't it? Now, I don't know about you. I'll speak for myself. I want to enjoy all the things that he has given me to enjoy. I do not want to be owned by any of them. I want to be able to walk away from anything that is possessive, money or anything else. But I want to richly enjoy all the things that he has. Because he said I could. But did you notice in that same verse there, in verse 17, that riches are uncertain? We've had a classic example of the uncertainty of riches this year in America and in the world. That men have been able to devise schemes whereby they have robbed people of a billion dollars. Billion used to be a big word. A lot of zeros and, you know, a billion is a thousand million. You had a million dollar stack of money in here. You had to put a thousand stacks of piles of one million dollars. It would take a thousand stacks to just be one billion. It would take a thousand roomfuls of a billion to be a trillion. Now, you've lost me. You can line million dollar stacks of money from here to St. Louis. And they're talking like that today in, in our government. I don't know what they're talking about. I know what they're trying to say. But it's just talk. But money is uncertain. Because people who invested all of that money one day realized that it wasn't there. 
The bank took your money. An investor took your money. You're going to invest in some kind of a, a system of man. So the, that man in that corporation or that broker, he takes your money, and he invested in here and he invested in here, and he puts it over there because he wants to make money with your money. It's not that he has in reserve enough money to cover you if his investments don't work. It's just that they work. And one day a lot of people, because banks do that too. Don't banks still loan money? They used to. Probably don't much, but banks take your money and they loan it. They don't keep in reserve enough to cover how much you gave them. They just loan it all out because they speculate that they'll have it. And the government will bail us out. And so one day it realized that something's wrong here. The people said, I want my money. Well, I want mine. I want mine too. I want mine. The bank said, we don't have any money. And in this country, a lot of people are broke today. I remember one interview, a man and his wife had $2 million to retire. $2 million. That's two stacks. That's a thousand thousands. That was going to be their retirement. It's gone. They were as old as I am and said they're going to have to go back to work. Now, you might say, oh, but it's not as easy to work when you're older as it was when you were younger. Trust me. You're not motivated like you once were. Now, they have to go back to work because they got robbed. But see, who told them they should invest money anyway? Now, if you want to invest your money, that's fine. I'm not an investor. I don't deal with stuff of that sort. I personally do not want to put the money I have into a system where it's loaned to other people who are penalized for how they use it or don't use it, or they're penalized for using interest. I just don't want to be a party to it. Friends say, oh, man, you could invest your money and you could have enough money next year to do that. I'm not even interested in having more to do with next year what I'm not even doing this year. It's not the need of my life. Life is not about money. Having a loving husband or a loving wife and enjoying your children, you can't buy that. You can't buy a church where you can feel like God meets you every week. You can't buy that. These things are not for sale. The kingdom of God cannot be purchased. These things are freely given. And yet people are so caught up in money. But they leave all of this aside. They'll move to some ice age to make a lot of money and never grow another inch spiritually. They don't know that money is killing you. You got a whole ton of you. Got, man, I made $500,000 last year. Yeah, you know what? You started drinking. I've heard two or three bad words and you don't attend church like you used to. You've lost something. Not only has it deceived you into... Seeing that as your hope and your God, but you could lose it in one hour. In one hour, you could lose it all. You could be sued. Stock market could fall. People have talked about an illness in which they had to spend all their money to get out. A court case. Woman slaps a child and told her to get off his case. In Georgia, leave your sister alone. I ain't talking to you. Pow! She swatted him across the jaw. And I know what that's like. My mother did that to me. <laughs> Somebody saw the lady slap the child. 
Followed the lady outside, got the license number, called wherever their nose was stuck into that they called that. Here come the people who need something to do because it's an office that's set up a, a branch of government. They ought to do something. Oh, we got something to do. We're going to put you in jail, woman. Why? Because you beat that child in public. The story goes it took all their savings account, all the money they had saved, several thousand dollars, just to get out of the court. Money is not what you think it is. It's good to have it. You can enjoy it. That's what it's for. It's not wrong to have money. It's wrong for money to have you. And if you'll keep your eyes and your heart on Jesus Christ, and you'll follow him and do the things that he wants you to do, if you live on his terms, money will never corrupt you. He can give you a lot of it because he knows if he gives it to you, he can also use you to give it away. Just like he told the rich folks here. He said, tell the rich people not to be lofty and high-minded. Nobody owes you anything. God himself in Deuteronomy 8 and 18, it is the Lord who giveth thee the power to get wealth. God does this. So if you've been blessed of God, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. It was the will of God that you'd be blessed. Now, can he trust you with all that money that he can use you with that money to bless his people and to bless things around the world? Can he use you? Are you willing to give? Because that's what I want to close with. Giving. We don't have any needs here, so we're not trying to get any money. But giving. A man once wrote, he said, It is possible to give without loving. But it's impossible to love without giving. Another man said, You do not have to be rich to be generous. If he has the spirit of true generosity, a pauper can live like a prince. A widow put two mites. That's not even a penny, I don't guess. A widow put two mites in the treasury. And Jesus said she gave more than they all. She was more generous than anybody. Giving is one of the ways that you show love. God so loved the world that he gave. It is his Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Giving is an expression of love. Whether it's your time and attention to somebody's need, to help somebody, to comfort somebody, or whether it's giving of your money to somebody that has more of a need of it than you do. It's an expression of love. Whoso hath this world's good, John wrote, and seeth a brother have need. If he shuts up his heart of compassion from that brother, how does the love of God dwell in him? It's God motivates us to love by giving. Or we give because we love. God never intended giving to be a burden. He never intended for us in giving to be burdened and harassed and regretting it. Listen at these words in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. If you don't give much, you won't get much. If you give generously... You'll receive generously. 
That's what the Bible says. Would you turn to that one, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7. See, God doesn't want you to give what you don't have. Don't bring your rent or your grocery money. Here, so I'm going to give it. That's not what he talks about. Yeah, well, the widow gave all that she had. Well, you don't know all the things about that. But if God's testing you and you're going through some difficult times and you got enough money to pay the rent this month, that's what you pay your rent with. Nobody's asking you to give all of that. That's not what the Bible's saying. For example, here, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse... Seven, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. What does that mean? Let me ask you a question. Now, we don't do this. I can say, after 27 years, I can say this. If I decided this morning we're going to take up an offering right now, we're going to take up an offering for something. All right, we're going to take up an offering. I want you all to give. What would you know to give? What if a $20 bill popped up in your mind? What if it said 20? And your brain said, well, that'd be nice to give, but you've only got 25. And hamburgers you've been eating on Sunday after church cost five and a quarter. What are you going to do about that hamburger? He might say, you know what? That which comes to my heart is just whatever that was. That's what I want to give. If you had to give this morning, you couldn't get out of the room or go to heaven if you didn't give something, how much would you give? This is all he asked for you. Let every man give according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly, not with sorrow. <laughs> we got to give. Here comes that old bucket. Or of necessity. For God loves what? Cheerful giver. It doesn't mean when you put money in the box, you got to just get your big breath of air and start laughing real loud. <laughs> and put your money in and walk out. It doesn't mean it that way. It's just a cheerful giver. I, I don't mind doing this. Quite frankly, I'm glad I had it to give. There was a time I couldn't. Now I can. I'm glad I can. I've been blessed. I can. Praise the Lord. I don't dread giving. God never intended any kind of giving to be a grudgery. He's not trying to harass us. We just get so attached to money, we don't want to let go of it. And yet, until you learn to let go of it as he directs it, you're never going to learn how to enjoy an abundance of it. I do know what I'm talking about. I really do. But you've got to be willing to give as the Lord gives unto you. And you've got to be willing to do that on his terms. As he said, it's more blessed to give. Remember Acts 20, 35? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Aren't you glad this morning that you don't have a bad attitude about money? Aren't you glad you don't have to deal with you just won a $150 million lottery? Some poor soul sent you a ticket in the mail and said, this is a $150 million lottery ticket. You went down to the office, wherever they go. And they said, you've got it. You won $150 million. You poor soul. Poor soul, yeah. You realize we may never see you again. You're going to give a lot of people a lot of that money, and they might get corrupted too. Look how many lives are corrupted now. They don't have to be corrupted. They might all do well. They might not. 
you got to realize this, that to whom much is given, you've got to give an account for it. I am so glad that Jesus is on his throne. That the life I live now in this flesh, I can live by the faith of the Son of God. I don't have any needs this morning that he won't supply. Physical, financial, domestic, social. I don't have any needs that God will not meet. Money can't say that. Because money can't buy me happiness. Money can't buy me a good woman. Money can't buy me peace. Money can't buy me joy. I can have moments, but I can't have a lasting measure of it. God is good. There's more. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you allow us to come together to hear your word and to teach it and to deal with our hearts even if we have to struggle with our thoughts and our feelings. But I know that you're working in us. You said the work you started, you would work in us for our good and your glory. That you don't want us to be bound to anything or by anything. To be obligated to Jesus Christ willingly. And know that if we'll seek first that kingdom, that everything else will be added to us. Heavenly Father, you've put a lot of really nice and good people in this room. A lot of these young folks are just coming into the realization of an adult life and a future. I pray they will not be sidetracked with money. That they will not put all their hopes and dreams in making money but to know that if they will seek first your kingdom and those things which you declare are right, that all these things the world is seeking after, you said, will be added to them. And they will get it not by effort and sweat, but by trust. So I ask you to bless these folks. Lead them as they leave this room. Form in their minds those pure and holy thoughts that you give. Keep us under your watchful and tender eye and guide us to your kingdom, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.